0: Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you to the second in our seminar series, De Magistro, Aquinas and the Education of the Whole Person. And it's my pleasure to introduce Father David Goodell. He did his BA in Philosophy in Cambridge and a Doctorate in Moral Theology at Freiburg. Besides having been prior here and vice-regent and acting regent, he has been teaching philosophy here and moral theology both here and at Oscott Seminary. We look forward to his book, Nature as Guide on Wittgenstein and moral theology, which will hopefully be published this autumn and on which we congratulate him in advance. And in view of that, the topic of that book we look forward very much to hearing Father David speak now on Wittgenstein training and habits. Father David.
1: Hello uh, good afternoon. Education at all levels involves training and the Bible is full of stories and images of training. The Lord leads the people of Israel, through the wilderness, training them so that they are ready to enter the promised land. Israel is the Lord's vineyard, which He trains to produce choice wine. Jesus compares God to a shepherd, training His sheep to obey His voice, and He trains His own disciples to prepare them to be the heralds of the new, the good news of the gospel. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit trains the disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations. By contrast, training is little mentioned in much contemporary philosophy and theology. What has academia to learn from the experience of shepherds, farmers or animal trainers? Much can be said about this reticence or rejection. It mirrors a general dislocation from our human animal nature by which our physical and sensual nature is commodified, and education rendered a tool for increased utility. A great deal of education, in fact, most of it, is concerned with utility. But to make education a tool for utility is to turn the means into the end. When utility becomes the end for education, we suffer a double loss. Firstly, education becomes an increasingly narrow affair, focused on bringing about the maximum effects at the lowest costs. Secondly, education focuses increasingly on techniques of learning, as opposed to the relationships within which learning occurs. In the first part of the paper, I will examine the increasing role Rick, Wittgenstein allots to training in his account of human learning and understanding. Here I will borrow insights from Vicky Hearn, the American animal trainer and philosopher, who found in Stanley Cavell's reading of Wittgenstein, a language to bring the world of the animal trainer into conversation with the world of the academic philosopher. Wittgenstein's emphasis on training could be read as implying the reduction of philosophy to a series of techniques. Here we are reminded of the criticism of Wittgenstein made by Russ Rees, as an early commentator on Wittgenstein accused him of replacing the human common search for understanding with an emphasis on language as mastery of techniques. There is certainly something to Reese's criticism. But then helps us to read Wittgenstein as opening a space between teacher and student in which both are obedient to a word which is not their own In in her own experience of Training animals. Hearn, drawing on her experience and those of other trainers, recognizes that only those who are obedient to the word are able to command obedience from the animals they train. The space in which the relationship between student and teacher develops is described by the philosopher William Desmond as the between. In this Desmond places himself under the tutelage of those great thinkers in philosophy and theology who acknowledged that any claim to speak the truth is founded upon the recognition of our status as creatures in the middle, neither claiming the all-knowing status of God, nor reduce, reducing reality to a finite measure of our own invention. Joseph Pieper sums it up in the following passage, in which he comments on Plato's symposium, just to quote from Pieper. The middle is a truly human sphere, the truly human thing. is neither to conceive or comprehend like God, nor to harden and dry up, neither to ship oneself up in the supposedly clear and enlightened everyday world, nor to resign oneself to remaining ignorant, nor to lose a childlike suppleness of hope, the freedom of movement that belongs to those who hope. In speaking here of hope, Piper is straddling the border between philosophy and theology. And we do likewise when we ask to what degree Wittgenstein's philosophical exercises help us return to the childlike suppleness of hope. Stephen Mulhall, who, like Kern, is influenced by Kavel's reading of Wittgenstein argues that the philosophical investigations is a work about origins, returning us to our natural childlike reactions, reactions which are distorted by the seriousness of the adult world. Talk of returning to a childlike suppleness may give the impression that adult civilization is an alien imposition to be scraped away to reveal human nature in its primitive glory But such romanticism is far from the thought of Wittgenstein and also far from Piper. It is the distortions of our ways of thinking and acting which concern Wittgenstein and Piper, not adult activity itself. Another term for this distortion is vice. And in the final part of the paper, I will argue that Wittgenstein's account of animal training throws light on both Aquinas' understanding of habits and on his educational practices as he trains his students to develop virtue. So we'll bring up at this point, the PowerPoint presentation, I could just outline for you something on the structure of the talk. There we go. Let me just start that. There we go. So here's the outline. Start with the role of thinking or the role of training in the philosophy of Wittgenstein. Secondly, we're going to look at Vicky Hearn's reflections on Wittgenstein's comments on lions. And finally, we'll look at St. Thomas on education and habits. There'll be occasional pictures of animals to entertain you as we go along. We have a skateboarding dog dressed in Dominican colours. So let's start with Wittgenstein and training. The philosophical investigations begins with a training exercise, in fact, with a whole series of training exercises. In which Wittgenstein introduces two linguistic practices. In the first, we are to imagine a shopping trip where Wittgenstein hands the shopper a slip of paper marked five apples. The shopkeeper opens straw marked apples, looks up the color on a chart, and counts out the number five. The second exercise is the beginning of Wittgenstein's famous Builder's Language game, in which a builder issues instructions to an assistant to bring building stones which have been appropriately labeled block, pillar, slab, and beam. Wittgenstein wants to show us, to help us to see how language works, to return us to the children's games in, fi- we, in which we first learned to use words. So this is to quote Wittgenstein from the investigations right at the beginning in the second paragraph. Wittgenstein says, a child uses such primitive forms of language when it learns to talk. Here the teaching of language is not explanation, but training. So you see right at the beginning there, second paragraph, training, learning of language through training. The builder's language game first appears in the collection of remarks contained in the Brown book, which Wittgenstein dictated to his students, Francis Skinner and Alice Ambrose, over 1934-35. to It is here that Wittgenstein develops the notion of language games, and with it, the argument that training is prior to explanation in our acquisition of language. These are training exercises, both in the sense that they describe how the use of words is acquired through training. And in the sense that we as participants in Wittgenstein's philosophical practices are being trained to gain an overview of our language. One way of looking at Wittgenstein's philosophical development is to see how his methods of training change and develop. The Tractatus is a demanding text, with few readers making it through to the end, and still fewer really understanding what Wittgenstein is getting at. In the investigations, by contrast, the reader is immediately engaged by the variety of examples and strategies Wittgenstein employs. Yet we, we would be wrong to conclude that the investigations have simplified the subject matter of the Tractatus. Wittgenstein came to see that the account of thought and language presented in, in the Tractatus was oversimplified, and that there was no one method of training which brings us to the point where we can throw away the ladder and see the world aright. The training he provides in the investigations provides a varied diet, and there is no one method which will solve all philosophical problems. Here again to quote Wittgenstein from later on in investigations paragraph 133. There is not a philosophical method, though there are indeed methods like different therapies. Move us on. So this is one of the early parts of the investigation, paragraph five, a child uses primitive forms of language when it learns to talk. So we've looked at that. I think I said paragraph two, but it's paragraph five of the investigations. And here's the passage we just looked at. There is not a philosophical method. There are indeed methods like different therapies. The therapeutic nature of Wittgenstein's later philosophy has much been discussed, but we misunderstand his intent if we en- envisage the therapy as a passive affair. Wittgenstein begins the investigations by remarking that, bring it in, quote, I should not like my writing to spare other people the trouble of thinking, but if possible, to stimulate to thoughts of his own. I should have liked to produce a good book, but this has not come about. But the time is past in which I could improve it. So this is in the preface, Wittgenstein setting the scene for the remarks of the investigation. Wittgenstein's therapy involves training, training us to think. A task in which he is conscious of his own deficiencies. Now, I don't think this is a false humility. In the Tractatus, Wittgenstein's humility is seen in his reticence to speak about what is truly important in life. And yet, this reticence is asserted from a godlike place beyond those concerns. The Wittgenstein who addresses us in the investigations shares in our concerns. And his ability to train us to think is founded on his obedience to language. He is a fellow traveler. Talk of obedience to language can summon up images of an impersonal network of signification. Yet returning to the context of training brings to light the relationships within which training occurs. Relationships which involve mastery of a language which cannot be reduced to technical success. And it is clear that Vicky Hearn's insights from the world of animal training can throw light on the relationships and practices which train us how to think. We will begin with Hearn's reflections on Wittgenstein's lion. So here we have, not quite sure this is how Wittgenstein would have pictured his own lion, but the famous Remark from Wittgenstein, and this comes from what's labelled most standard texts the second part in the Investigations, but in fact really is a kind of separate work. Investigations are very tightly knit work, which was edited and re-edited by Wittgenstein numerous occasions, whereas the second part, or more remarks that were collected, concern the philosophy of psychology. But at the same time, they can throw light on the main part, the first part of the investigation. So, this comes from page 223E from the Anscombe um, dual text edition of the investigations. When Helen writes about Wittgenstein's famous remark on lions, she heads her chapter, Wittgenstein's Lion, not Wittgenstein's remarks on lions. If Wittgenstein is training us to think about language, it might seem that Hearn has missed a point and naively substituted a real beast of flesh and blood for the grammatical reminder in Wittgenstein's text. Wittgenstein remarks, if a lion could talk, we could not understand him. For those familiar with Wittgenstein, this remark is a striking image which sums up much of the investigations. Language is embedded in forms of life. And if you remove our words from their wider surroundings, they're no longer our words. This much Hearn agrees with, but whereas we may be tempted to add something like, whether or not Wittgenstein gets lines right, does not detract from the force of the image, Hörn begs to differ. It does matter whether or not we get lines right. Wittgenstein's lion will not let himself be so easily tamed. And neither will Wittgenstein for that matter. If Wittgenstein's lion sums up much of the investigation, the following remark by Kern sums up what Wittgenstein is about with his non-talking lion. So to quote here from Kern, it is easy to say there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, but much, much harder to say, as Wittgenstein does, with stunning precision, in the course of an almost miraculously exacting mistake, that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in one's own philosophy, locating them by dreaming, in this case, of lions, even as he mistakes lions for himself. Kern does not spell out the joke, which ends the remark, perhaps out of respect for Wittgenstein. But you could well imagine a less reverent philosopher joking. If Wittgenstein could talk, we could not understand him. Philosophical humor is a niche occupation at the best of times. When it comes to Wittgenstein, only the brave venture forth. Animal trainers, however, cannot afford to be reticent when they venture forth, and failure to engage with animal humour will not end well. Hearn brings this same courage to engagement with Wittgenstein, unafraid to share a joke, yet able to do so only from a place of deep respect. If this encounter between Wittgenstein and Hearn is best understood through the lens of animal training, we might begin to wonder who is trainer and who is being trained. To answer this, we need to examine what happens when an animal is trained. It's important to note that I talk about an animal being trained. Hern is very specific. We don't have a general theory of animal training. Each animal, each type of animal, and even individual animals themselves are trained according to the nature of that animal. So you couldn't just write a treatise animal training in general. So either training a cat, training a horse, training a lion, and then the individual temperaments of those creatures. Her own experience of animal training comes from training horses and training dogs. She is clear that when she trains a horse or trains a dog, she expects obedience. The mention here of obedience may immediately raise the listener's hackles, and perhaps with good reason. It's one thing to talk about the obedience of a dog, another thing to talk about the obedience of ourselves to a philosopher. Yet when Hun talks of obedience, she's not talking about the blind following of orders we often picture when obedience is mentioned. To understand obedience, Hun returns to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were given dominion over the other living creatures of the earth. He describes Adam's task in the following passage, which beautifully expresses an original justice in which recognition and obedience are woven together. Adam Adam gave names to the creatures and they responded to their names without objection since in this dominion to command and to recognise were one action. There was no gap between the ability to command and the full acknowledgement of the personhood of the being so commanded. Nature came when called, and came the first time too without coaxing, nagging or tugging. This original harmony was broken by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. From failing to obey God's word, their authority to command the material creation was undermined. Most of the animal world turned away from human authority, but some animals, the ones we call domestic, gave us a second chance, albeit that now we can only command if our training is cleansed through catharsis. If we sentimentalize our relationship to animals, we get what we deserve. But if we purge our training of our own emotional needs, then the work of training can begin. The obedience a trainer expects is only possible if the trainer is herself obedient to a word which is not her own or which she is not the author. An obedience goes both ways. We are trained by our animals as we train them. Herne's writings take shape around her accounts of animal training, and following these reflections on Adam and Eve and naming, she recounts the story of Salty, a one-year-old pointer. At first, the relationship is one way. Herne issuing the command with Salty obeying or failing to obey. But there comes the day when Hearn finds Salty sitting spontaneously in a formal position. So Hearn hasn't prompted this. Salty, the dog, has decided to do this for herself. Now the exchange is both directions, works in both directions. Salty is telling Hern something, even if Hearn is initially unsure how to interpret the remark. So here we have a picture of a pointer, again, nicely dressed in Dominican colours. This time it is Salty who has enlarged the context, the arena of its use. By means of what we might as well go ahead and call the trope of projection. Salty and I are, for the moment at least, obedient to each other and to language. Volumes have been written about Wittgenstein's philosophical development, but his whole journey can be summed up as obedience to language. His austere reference in the Tractator for what we cannot speak about contrasts with the loquacious engagement of the investigations. But far from revealing a loss of obedience to and over over-famili- familiarity with language, Wittgenstein's linguistic struggles are born from a place of deep respect. In the preface to the investigations, Wittgenstein describes how his attempts to weld his various remarks on subjects such as logic, the foundations of mathematics and psychology into a unified whole failed. But that he came to realize that such a false unity was always destined to failure. My thoughts, my thoughts would seem crippled if I tried to force them on in any single direction against their natural inclination. And this was, of course, connected with the very nature of the investigation, for this compels us to travel over a wide field of thought, crisscross in every direction. Those philosophical remarks in this book are, as it were, a number of sketches of landscapes, which were made in the course of these long and involved journeyings. The engaged perspective of the investigations is not a concession to those who struggle with the technical complexities of the tractators. It is Wittgenstein's obedience to language which shapes and forms the context of these remarks. He reminds us that there is a third party involved in the encounter between Wittgenstein and language, the trainee. Without him, there is no Tractatus or Investigations. The Tractatus stands before us like a perfectly formed statue, and we marvel at it, astounded by its beauty. Yet Wittgenstein wants us to see it as nonsense. My propositions serve as elucidations. My proposition serve as elucidations in the following way. Anyone who understands me eventually recognises them as nonsensical. When he has used them as steps to climb up beyond them, he must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up it. So it's clear that Wittgenstein's work, The Tractatus*, a difficult work to get into, is addressed to an audience nevertheless. his obedience to language, but also his relationship with his reader is shaping these remarks. A great deal of ink has been spilled on what Wittgenstein means by nonsense, but whatever he means, it is clear that he wants a reader to engage with his thought. If we are to transcend his remarks to see the world as it is, we can only do so by engaging with those remarks. And yet, as we have noted, the Tractatus is not an easy text to engage with. There is no voice for the student, little of the dialectical practices which characterise Wittgenstein's later works. Wittgenstein is like an animal trainer who has written a brilliant treatise on training cats with many brilliant insights, who then decides to retire but it's brought out to retirement when the world of cats is running around making its brilliance look stupid. The obedience Wittgenstein has for lamage is also an obedience to his students. He is still the master, but his claim to authority is shaped through his encounter with those he teaches. And the varying voices of the investigations call him to take responsibility for his lamage. Wittgenstein's later 40s shaped through his teaching and far from detracting from valuable research time, his encounters with his students deepen his encounter with the mystery of the world. This is not to reduce thought to a pragmatic exercise in consensus building. Van reminds us that in training Salty, her one-year-old pointer, her own obedience to language was essential That obedience, however, was shaped by Hun's relationship with Salty, opening up new possibilities for both dog and human. And so it is with Wittgenstein. Those encounters with his students open up new possibilities for his philosophy. As teacher, Wittgenstein stands in continuity with the Socratic tradition of philosophy and the centrality of dialectical practices for arriving at the truth. Far from detracting the philosopher from the serious business of academic research, teaching in this tradition opens both student and teacher to the word which has authority to command obedience. And so to conclude this paper, I will look at St. Thomas's own dialectical practices looking really at three things. Thomas's obedience to the word, how this obedience shapes his teaching. Secondly, looking at how that teaching itself shapes his expression, his understanding of God's word. And finally, looking at training as training for the whole person in the works of Thomas. And it's here where we'll particularly engage with the topic of habits, albeit in a a very brief manner. So let's move to St. Thomas. Hearn's trinity of trainer, dog and Language, are mirrored in the first question of the prima pars of the Summa, right at the beginning. Here Thomas begins his course in theology with divinely inspired scripture. And here to quote, it was necessary for man's salvation that there should be a knowledge revealed by God beside philosophical science built up by human reason. The teacher Thomas addresses his students and immediately draws their attention to the basis for his own title as master, his obedience to God's word. Once he is no longer obedient to the word, he will no longer command the obedience of his students. Obedience to the truth is essential for any teaching, but here the relational nature of the obedience is brought to light. Whereas the philosopher is obedient to God as universal truth, the obedience of the theologian goes beyond this as an obedience to the word who is himself obedient unto death. Domestic animals can be trained to live in the world of human beings. And Thomas, at the beginning of the Summa, presents the task of theology as training us to live in God's world. Now it is God himself who is the principal trainer and the master of theology, his obedient student. The obedience which Hun sees as essential for any title of authority lies at the heart of the theologian's teaching in a manner which goes beyond the philosopher's obedience to universal truth. Aquinas gives two reasons why theology needs divine revelation in addition to rational human investigation. Firstly, because God has destined us for an end beyond anything human reason can comprehend. Secondly, the ability of human beings to reason correctly about divine matters is limited to the few and to them often with mistakes. Now, an attentive student made this point wonder why Thomas needs to proffer arguments for the necessity of divine revelation. If God is our teacher and his instruction given in scriptures. Why do we need arguments to establish this? Is is God's word not its own authority? To answer this, it's important to keep in mind the distinction Thomas draws between the primary elements of revelation and its secondary elements. In question 106 of the Prima Secundi, Thomas identifies the grace of the Holy Spirit as a predominant characteristic of Christ's new law. It is God's Holy Spirit which forms and teaches those who believe in Christ. There are, however, certain secondary elements which belong to the new law. To move on to quoting St. Thomas. And translation I'm using of Thomas is the, the 1920s Dominican Shafkot version. Um, not to say that other translations are wrong and so on. It's just I think this provides a kind of common as it were, a common translation many people use. To quote Thomas. Nevertheless, the new law contains certain things that dispose us to receive the grace of the Holy Ghost. And pertaining to the use of that grace, such things are of secondary importance, so to speak, in the new law. And the faithful need to be instructed concerning them, both by word and writing, both as to what they should believe, and as to what they should do. So here are the secondary elements of the law. And the written text of scripture is secondary to the instruction we receive from the Holy Spirit. But this is not to say that it's just one of a series of aids that we can use. Scripture has a privileged position in disposing us to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. And in our exercise of that grace, once we have received it. When Thomas speaks here about disposing us to receive grace, it is important to remember that the us referred to is the us of human beings. Holmes stresses that animal training varies depending on the kind of animal being trained and the individual temperament of the particular animal. And so it is here. The training we will receive through the Master of Theology will be one adapted to the human being. And that brings us to ask, well, what is it about human nature? What's specific about human nature in terms of how we understand that training to take place? We're a different kind of animal to other animals. Wittgenstein, in his remarks on training in the Brown book, contrasts the training we give to cats with that we give to dogs, for example. It says, here we are to quote: Imagine the gestures, sounds, etc., of encouragement you use when you teach a dog to retrieve. Imagine, on the other hand, that you try to teach a cat to retrieve. As a cat will not respond to your encourage- encouragement. Most of the acts of the encouragement, which you performed when you trained the dog, are here out of the question. They're looking at how training is specific to the kind of animal you address. And we, this complex, rational animal, are going to be trained in a very particular way, according to our nature. Nicely illustrated this with a very fearsome looking cat, who is Richard Conrad's father, Richard Conrad's favorite cat in the world, called Bagpus. So this is in honor of Father Richard, we have a little picture there of Bagpuss, refusing to be trained like a dog. Wittgenstein wants us to see the role of encouragement and the role it plays in training as part of the background to developing our linguistic practices. Scripture disposes us to receive and use the grace of the Holy Spirit by teaching us in a manner suitable to human beings. The work of the theologian is to help us understand the instruction, this instruction. And to do this, we will need to be addressed as human beings in a manner suitable to our nature. And this is why the use of reasoning and argument is so important. The truth has been given through revelation in Jesus Christ and it is made present in our hearts by the action of the Holy Spirit. We cannot obtain this truth through reasoning and argument. The Theologian can, however, help those who have received God's grace to become more receptive to the work of the Spirit in their lives. Reasoning and argument are important essential in the teaching of the Theologian because we are rational animals. When considering what kind of training is appropriate for human beings, we rightly put the emphasis on the rational. But it is important not to forget that we are a rational animal. And therefore all our actions, including acts of learning, of education, involve our animal nature. In the Prima Secundae of the Summa, St. Thomas is concerned with the nature of human acts, and with the acts which transform and perfect human nature. He begins by analysing the essence of human acts, and then considers the intrinsic and extrinsic principles of human action. The intrinsic principles of human acts are intellect, will, and habit, Whereas the extrinsic principles are law and grace. So understanding who human beings are, to understand on nature, we have to understand our actions, what we do, how we act, and the interior and exterior principles according to which we act. Now, all of these principles, interior and exterior, are involved in human education including if we take it in its broadest sense of learning about things of God. If we wish, however, to understand what is specific about human education, then we need to examine the nature of human habits. The whole of creation is subject to God's eternal law. Angels also have intellect and will and require God's grace to share in the beatific vision. What is unique to human nature for St. Thomas is a necessity of habits for both natural and supernatural perfection. Angels require a habit to attain God by intellect and will, but human beings require habits both to perfect their nature and to attain God. For Thomas... Angels with their creation, their intellect is activated, becomes active instantly with their creation. They receive ideas which actualize the intellect. There's no habitus there. He also thinks this of the human intellect in terms of the active intellect and the passive intellect. It will just automatically grasp truth, like two is, two is four, two plus two is four, for example. But because we're a material creature, we need habits. So here again to uh, to quote from St. Thomas. However, the angelic intellect and the human intellect differ with regard to this habit. For the human intellect, being the lowest in the intellectual order, is in potentiality as regard to all intelligible things. Just as primal matter is in respect of all sensible forms. And therefore, for the understanding of all things, it needs some habit. So angels and human beings require habits to attain the vision of God. But human beings also need habits to perfect their nature so that they can share according to their nature in the beatific vision. Now, the reason why the human intellect is the lowest in the intellectual order is because human beings are both spiritual and material creatures. A materiality we share with the rest of the material world. So you might think, well, if this is to materiality, the habits, habitus, does this occur in the rest of the material world? St. Thomas argues against this. He argues that only human beings have habits. Other material creatures have dispositions which direct them to their end. But due to the changeability of material nature, these material dispositions do not have the stability of habits, which require a stable spiritual principle. For example, we can talk of health as a habit. And Thomas acknowledges that Aristotle does so But because in itself health is subject to physical alteration, it is not a full habit in the way that the habits which are to do with our spiritual nature are habits. If habits on Thomas's account are particular to human beings, how do we make sense of the kind of education involved in animal training? The Thomas education is something we share with other animals. So, although Thomas reserves the term habit for human beings, the kind of formation animals enter into when they are trained is not just a matter of mechanical conditioning. When Thomas describes the behavior of animals as determined through instinct, we tend to picture a mechanical mechanism moving the animal from within. Set, however, within the wider principles of Aristotelian physics, animal instinct relates not only to efficient causation, but the final material and formal causes through which we make sense of animals. So this is important because if we're concerned with our own animality or an animal nature, albeit one which. Because we are an irrational animal shares in rationality. But in terms of nature itself, if it can't in and of itself be formed by habits. At the same time, it's not to be reduced by Thomas to just a kind of mechanical, efficient mechanism. Thomas's understanding of animals is richer than that. And understanding also therefore of our animal nature. Kern writing in the 80s and 90s contrast the approach of the animal trainer with the mechanical explanations of behavioural scientists. Whereas animal trainers have no problem describing animal behaviour in terms which involve concepts such as humour and mocking, behavioural scientists eschew such terms in favour of strict, scientifically determined stimuli and conditioning. Now the problem with these seemingly scientific explanations is not that they present animals or animal behavior in a way that we find difficult humanly to understand, but they can't make sense full stop of animal behavior. Here we're reminded of Wittgenstein's remarks on Fraser's causal scientific explanations in anthropology. Fraser was a 19th century Scottish anthropologist, so Wittgenstein accused him of being an Englishman in this remark, but Fraser went around, looked, looked at various throughout the world collated anthropological data, but he's worth explaining the practice of primitive peoples through a kind of quasi-scientific causal explanation. So Wittgenstein's remarks on Fraser, um, Really throw light on a lot of Wittgenstein's thinking. They're marginal notes, you know, they're not a fully written treatise, you know, they're their remarks here and there, made, made in two different periods. Yet they, they throw a huge amount of light on what Wittgenstein is doing. And here will see a remark. So to quote Wittgenstein, Fraser is much more savage than most of his savages for they are not as far removed from the understanding of a spiritual matter as a 20th century Englishman. His explanations of primitive practices are much cruder than the meaning of those practices themselves. And although Hearn doesn't quote this and doesn't mention because science remarks on Fraser, Hearn's reaction to the behavioral scientists who are trying to make sense of animal behavior is very similar. Returning to Thomas. For Thomas, habits are the stable dispositions which enable human beings to perfect their nature. To understand how they do this, and therefore how best to educate human beings, we need to understand that nature in its fullness, the nature which is being perfected we are rational creatures, but our rationality informs a particular kind of animal nature. And yet it would be wrong to conclude that the kind of explanation gained from applying Aristotelian principles solves the mystery of animal behavior. We're not just talking about providing more accurate predictions of measured results by using the language of purpose, of end, of form. We not only can understand and predict what animals will do in a more accurate manner, but we get a greater insight into what animals are. And yet, there is still something mysterious here. I think it's very important trying to understand wittgenstein but also particularly to understand now thomas that we're using aristotelian science to understand nature this case our human nature and nature formed through habits but there is something essentially mysterious in human nature something which goes beyond our explanations keeper in the Silence of St. Thomas argues that Saint, for St. Saint Thomas, not only God himself, but also things have an eternal name that man is unable to utter. So just to quote Peeper again, not only God himself, but also things have an eternal name that man is unable to utter. In many ways, this chimes in with Kern's remarks on Wittgenstein's Lion. Kern describes, as we see in Wittgenstein's Lion, as an almost miraculously exacting mistake. For although Wittgenstein gets lines wrong, his line is a line of towering beauty. There's something magnificent about the silence, the reticence of Wittgenstein's Lion, something that we human beings cannot grasp, something mysterious and wonderful in this lion. And so Hearn sees in this, in the Wittgenstein's line a more profound silence and she goes as far as to say it is like the silence of God. So again we've got some very strong parallels there for you. Peeper's understanding of the silence of St. Thomas and here the silent lion, the reticent lion, telling us about the mystery of God's creation. So wonderful reflections Kern um, has on the book of Job and a final speech of God in the book of Job, where I'd never really noticed this before, but if, if you look at that speech, so much of it details nature. God's training of the animals of nature. It's a wonderful if you, you reread that with the kind of the perspective of the animal trainer in mind. You see, Job is an animal trainer. And yet he doesn't understand the mystery of God's nature. And here God, the trainer, appears and trains Job. they are wonderful reflections by, by him there. It's found also in in the collection Animal Happiness. So to return again to Thomas, education for Thomas involves entering into the mystery of God. For not only is God the goal of education, a mystery beyond our grasp, but also the origins of education in nature go beyond our grasp also. If we see education as training, the training of a rational animal, this is not so much to demystify what goes on when we learn, but to acknowledge the essential mystery involved in education, to see how the transformation of the whole of our nature Remains an essential mystery. That the work of God's Holy Spirit. That relationship of love through which God trains us. Is our entry deeper into the mystery of God. And the mystery of his creation. Okay, thank you very much. I think we will just stop sharing the. I can find my cursor. Stop stop sharing the. uh, There we go. Back. Okay, I think, I think we're ready for,
0: I'll just mute myself. I'd like to thank Father David very much for a fascinating paper, which seemed to me highly empathetic towards Wittgenstein's development, towards animals, towards the teaching relationship, and towards Aquinas' view of his project. And for me, it brought together many strands of thought in a provocative and fruitful way. Special thanks for the pictures, above all that of Bagpuss. As an admirer of cats, I'm certainly obedient to the idea that we need to be trained by them. Father Oliver has kindly agreed to give a formal response to Father David's paper, um, after which Father David might like to respond to Oliver while other people participating formulate their
2: questions. So Thank you very much uh, Father David for your paper and I know from speaking to you that it's just really the tip of an iceberg of a broader uh, project that you're working on so I hope in the questions we might learn uh, more about that and thank you for the magnificent array of, uh, of clip arts that you use to animate it, um, thank you very much. Now what struck me really about your paper which uh, I, I gained a lot from especially in the area of Wittgenstein and training as it relates to language was the way in which it offers an account of formation. Formation is something which I think is spoken of often in theology today and in pastoral theology as as well as systematic theology, uh, but often in a way in which the meaning appears somewhat mystical and opaque. And you've given us today an account of formation as grounded by the linguistic and effective givens of human nature. And that of course opens immediately philosophy into the realm of theology. Um, And there are resonances, I think, with Saint Irenaeus's picture of Adam and Eve being created as children who grow into maturity with the help of God and particularly the Holy Spirit, working against the distortions which are introduced by the power of sin. So training, education and formation are, for the theologian at least, nested within uh, an account of sanctification. A process which we're inserted into only as in the middle voice as instrumental participants simultaneously active and passive. And for this reason I think your paper is especially apt at the present moment when much education is taking place under conditions of social distance. As a result technological mediation has now entered into what you call the middle with possible consequences for the further dislocation of the student-teacher relationship from the exigencies of created animal nature. It seems important that much of what is lost in technological mediation of education is not only hard to specify, but actually inarticulable. Hearn's remarks about the silence of Wittgenstein's lions seem to me to offer an important corrective here, The middle is a multidimensional space, and often contested, a place of negotiated invisibilities where the silences which envelop education also animate and vivify its life-giving process. The quality of silence that hangs between our words, a silence which is, of course, a communally mediated practice, seems, educationally speaking, to be just as important as the words that break those silences. Now, one of the points that Father David acknowledged in his paper was that the language of obedience is likely to stimulate something of a response. And he hints there towards criticisms of Hearn's methods that might be raised by contemporary readers. Obedience, however, might qualify the sense that Professor Hitz was raising in the last seminar of destructive reason. And it's interesting that whilst the language of obedience elicits such a negative response, that of disciplinarity does not. This suggests another alienation of the sciences from the more ancient and richer sense of disciplina, an account of the sciences as a set of communal, mediated intellectual exercises that are serving to and ordered towards uh, insight into that which is given. The account of obedience that is operating in your paper, it seems to me, is more about uh, an obedience to that which is given, a fidelity to that which is real, rather than about authority as an exercise of violence or an imposition of power. The picture of training, whether it be that of animals or of human beings, is only one that operates if givenness is actually something which has a logos within it. That's to say, if it is not, as Sellers would have it, a myth, but if there is some reality which is impregnated with reason itself, a logos accessible to our minds, but which is embedded within the creature uh, as we encounter it. To flesh this out, the paper looks to Aquinas on theology's obedience to the divine word. And that, as Father David said, takes the form of subalternation, by which theology receives its first principles in obedience to the science of God himself, God's own knowledge as shared with the elect. And just as created sciences accept their first principles from the authority of other created sciences, so theology too accepts its first principles from the uncreated science of God's own knowledge. But there are two things we might say about that. Firstly, the web of interlocking sciences, which is animated by that dynamic of obedience and authority, is grounded for Aquinas in a theological ontology, in a relational account of all that exists as being unified precisely by a relationship to God. And in the contemporary university, that metaphysical unity of the sciences has shifted into an epistemological unity, one that's guaranteed by the iteration of a particular method. So there is, to add to the alienation that Father David identified, a further alienation of method. A method is now alienated from the reality that it studies in a way that mirrors our own dislocation from our own animality. But secondly, subalternation is only one of two modes of obedience that operate within sacra-doctrina. The other is subordination, which allows for the matter of one science to be surveyed from a higher vantage point. Theology can thus add richness to an empirical science, but without interfering in its proper competence. In this case, subordination might feel less violent than subalternation, and closer to Hearn's vision of the co-inherence of recognition and obedience, but then it also probably falls short of actual obedience to the word. The repetitive nature of animal training finds, I think, an echo in the supernatural register that the rhythmic character of Aquinas's mature pedagogy manifests. This is, of course, embedded in the Summa Theologiae with its rhythmic macrostructure and microstructure, and this points, I think, to the importance of ritual, both to liturgical rituals in the case of theological formation, and to the smaller rituals that we find in education. For Aquinas, it seems as if the role that questions play in education serves to create and sustain that rhythm so that the learner can circle more and more deeply into the mystery which they seek to examine. But as Wittgenstein so often shows, correcting our inherited questions is perhaps more important than providing answers. But then, Do Aquinas and Wittgenstein understand questions as operating in the same sort of way? Just one final thought. Hearn's account of the two-way character of animal training, that the human is habituated just as they attempt to habituate the animal, points to the ways in which training an animal could and should be humanising, This touches on the question of animal ethics, the ways in which we train animals ought to actualize and manifest something which is essentially human. And some readers will, I think, see in this a subversion of otherization, an otherization which sees the human person as fundamentally separate from the animal kingdom. But for Aquinas, it seems to be more about the question of realizing the human person's unique status within the cosmos as belonging both to the animal world and to the spiritual world of material creatures. And I wondered if Father David might like to comment on that too.